You are listening to Counterterrorism After 9-11, a podcast series exploring how our field has changed in the aftermath of the terrorist attacks on September 11th, 2001. Today, Counterterrorism After 9-11 is speaking to Bruce Hoffman, Professor of Security Studies at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service. He is also a Senior Fellow for Counterterrorism and Homeland Security at the Council on Foreign Relations. Having spent 45 years at the forefront of counterterrorism research, Bruce will be talking us through how counterterrorism has evolved over the course of his career, his view on the impacts of 9-11, and the future of the global war on terror. I'm Julie Coleman. I'm a senior research fellow and program lead for PCBE at the International Center for Counterterrorism. And it's my pleasure to be here today with Bruce Hoffman. So perhaps to start off with Bruce, I'm sure that anyone listening to this recording will be very familiar with your name and your work. But perhaps if I could turn it over to you to introduce yourself, um, your your position, and maybe a little bit about your your professional background. Sure. Well, first, let me say how delighted I am to be participating in this um, series. I suppose the most the most important uh, characteristic about my background is I've now been studying terrorism and counterterrorism and insurgency and counterinsurgency literally for 45 years since I first came up to graduate school in October 1976. I spent uh, the first decade plus at uh, as, as an analyst at the Rand Corporation. Uh, in the mid-1990s, I moved to St. Andrews University, Scotland, where I co-founded and was the first director of the Center for the Study of Terrorism and Political Violence at St. Andrews, I believe the longest continuously um, existing academic institution dedicated to the study of terrorism and political violence. In 1998, I left Scotland, returned to the United States, uh, to the RAND Corporation, but whereas I had spent the beginning of my career at, the, at RAND's headquarters in Santa Monica, California, in 1998, I returned to the Washington office. I was across the highway from the Pentagon on September 11, 2001, when American Airlines Flight 77 crashed into it. So uh, unfortunately, I had a ringside seat, as, as it were. I stayed at RAND until um, the mid-2000s. Uh, whilst at RAND, I was seconded uh, to the Central Intelligence Agency as scholar-in-residence for counterterrorism. I was also seconded to the Coalition Provisional Authority as an advisor on counterterrorism. I subsequently served as an advisor on counterinsurgency to the multinational forces Iraq headquarters. Uh, I then came into academe full-time in 2006, when I was appointed professor at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service, working in the security studies program. I've been there since uh, for a brief period. I was uh, a uh, congressionally appointed commissioner on the 9-11 Review Commission between 2013 and 2015, um, which was designed to assess how the FBI had adopted from primarily a law enforcement agency before 9-11 to an intelligence-driven one after that period, and in particular to see how the FBI had implemented the um, the intelligence reforms enacted by Congress in 2004. I'm currently still a professor in the Security Studies Program at Georgetown University, where I also direct the Center for Jewish Civilization. 
I'm simultaneously a senior fellow for counterterrorism and homeland security at the Council on Foreign Relations, and also a senior fellow at West Point's Combating Terrorism Center. Thank you. Certainly an impressive career. What was your role at the time of the 9-11 attacks? Of course, 9-11 just changed everything uh, in that there was an intense need for terrorism research, um, such as there really had it been in the mid-1990s. I mean, frankly, that's one of the reasons I left Rand and went to St. Andrews University. There was no longer any government funding for terrorism research. And I thought that if I worried, rather, if I stayed at Rand, that my expertise would, would, would become rusty. So when the late Professor Paul Wilkinson offered me an academic position at St. Andrews, and not only that, said, you know, come and help me build the center and you'll be its first director, I jumped at the opportunity to remain in terrorism studies. But after 1998, and that was one of the reasons I returned to Rand, is that following the, the August 1998 bombing of the U.S. embassies in East Africa by al-Qaeda, governmental interest in terrorism was slowly increasing and reversing from the stagnation of the early 1990s. But of course, it took off in a completely different direction following the September 11th attacks. What was your personal experience of 9-11? That was an absolutely horrific day, um, especially being just, you know, across, across Highway 395 from the Pentagon. Um, I so clearly remember that, uh, firstly, I thought that World War III had started in the sense that this isn't exactly comforting to people, I think. Uh, either then or now, but uh, I felt that society had broken down in this, in the sense that in the aftermath of the, uh, of the two planes crashing into the Twin Towers, then the strike on the Pentagon, and then the plane, United Airlines 93, uh, that was taken over by passengers, or at least there was an attempt to, to, to regain control of the aircraft from the hijackers, and it crashed into a field in Pennsylvania. No one knew what was going on and what was happening. The United States was under attack as it had never been, even on on December 7th, 1941. I mean, this was the continental United States. United Airlines Flight 93 crashed into the U.S. Capitol, the citadel of American democracy and, and, and freedom. And no one knew what was going on. Astonishingly, because, of course, a month earlier, two CIA analysts had gone down to President Bush's uh, uh, ranch in Crawford, Texas, where he was vacationing and delivered a, a briefing titled Bin Laden Intent on Undertaking Attack on the United States. But, you know, you have to remember, the federal government closed down. Everybody sent their workers home. All of a sudden, you know, in, in let's say between 10 and, uh, and 10 a.m. and noon, the streets of Washington, D.C. were just packed. Traffic was gridlocked. No one was observing red lights. You couldn't get anywhere. The metros were packed. Everybody, much like in Manhattan, just had to walk home. And it really alarmed me because it showed or it underscored what I had always studied and had always known and feared is the power of terrorism. The power of, you know, 19 individuals in that instance or one terrorist leader, Osama bin Laden, literally to change the course of history, uh, which it was obvious that was happening that day, but also how they could so completely and decisively upend society. And that's, that, that's an, a memory that I, that I keep today that, that really troubles me when sometimes we blithely talk about, you know, building up resilience. 
Um, I, I spent a lot of time in Israel in the early 2000s studying the Israeli security forces and governments and public's response to the spate of suicide bombings between 2000 and roughly 2004, 2005, and multiple trips to Israel. And I saw how even a society that has been in a war of terrorism literally since its founding that is supposedly highly resilient uh, was similarly almost paralyzed by the succession of suicide attacks. So it made me um, very much question the conventional wisdom that terror, oh, the conventional wisdom certainly before 9-11, that terrorism was a law enforcement problem, um, did not have strategic consequences. September 11th wiped the slate clean. And I think that's its lasting and most enduring effect is that ter- terrorism on that day crossed the threshold from being uh, you know, a tactical problem, as some, I think, wrongly would have said, even a, a nuisance to something that had profound strategic consequences on a global magnitude. And in fact, uh, that potentially brought us closer to understanding the conceivable, the conceivably existential threat that terrorism could pose to established nation states. So looking back at the past 20 years, would you have predicted that the global war on terror would unfold in the way that it did? I don't think anybody could have predicted the course of the war on terrorism. And I don't think anybody at the time thought we'd still be enmeshed in this struggle, uh, regardless of how of, of how much nowadays people you know, want to engage in wishful thinking and wish away the terrorist threat. I still don't think anybody would have imagined that 20 years later we'd be fighting these same adversaries that, if anything, the ideology behind al-Qaeda is stronger today than it was back then. There are four times as many groups today designated by the State Department as terrorist organizations with that ideology than there was on 9-11, which I think is a, a, a significant uh, uh, knock on uh, or failure of uh, the war on terrorism. It succeeded certainly in keeping the homeland, the United States, and to a large extent, but not not as complete Europe free from major catastrophic terrorist um, attacks. But I don't think anybody would have foreseen the path that we followed. Certainly no one imagined, at least no serious terrorism analyst that I know of, imagined on September 11th, 2001, that less than two years later, the United States would invade Iraq. Um, and completely pivot away from the focus on al-Qaeda and to defeating worldwide terrorism onto a, a fruitless search for weapons of mass destruction that didn't exist with with highly, even at the time, I think, dubious and tenuous claims that, that Iraq had something to do with 9-11. So that was unpredictable. But I do remember very distinctly, uh, shortly before noon on September 11th, 2001, standing in front outside of the Rand office in Pentagon City, so very close to the Pentagon, literally as all hell was breaking loose as the streets were teeming with persons trying to get away from government and contractor and other offices in the area. And I thought to myself, we'll never make this mistake again. We'll never underestimate the power of terrorism. We'll never lower our guard and become complacent. And I must say, that in August 2020, 2021, I feel like I'm back in the early 1990s, where we dismissed the threat of al-Qaeda, when we looked askance at the Taliban taking over Afghanistan, 
Um, when we believe that when al-Qaeda was expelled from Sudan and uh, confined to Afghanistan, that it would somehow remain in its box and never threaten any country anywhere. And I feel like we're back in the exact same position. And that was certainly something that I thought on September 11, 2001, we would never be back. And I thought we had learned a very profound lesson about terrorism's power to affect the course of history and to have these profound strategic consequences on governments throughout the world. Why do you think it is that with all of the attention and resources and efforts that have been paid into the field of counterterrorism, why haven't we been better about learning those lessons? We're certainly far better prepared to counter the threat of terrorism in the United States and elsewhere than we were in the 1990s. So I want to be clear on that. What I'm talking about is the mentality. And I just think that this is a pathology that's woven into history and all countries afflicted by terrorism is that we've seen time and time again in the immediate aftermath of a terrorist attack, there's intense concern, intense governmental focus, and indeed um, resources devoted to countering terrorism. But time and time again, and not least uh, in the context of the 9-11-2001 attacks, as time has receded, we become more complacent. We see terrorism as a threat, but perhaps don't prioritize it in the same way. And what worries me is that at least as history has shown, it's precisely when we begin to lower our guard, when we shift our focus away from terrorist threats, that our adversaries who have not given up, who certainly unquestionably are far weaker today than they were on 9-11. My problem is this: they may be weaker, but firstly, there's more of them. And secondly, they haven't lost their determination to strike at the United States and the West at some point. I mean, terrorists determine the pace and the timing of their operations, not necessarily us. And in this sense, what worries me is that we lower our guard and provide terrorists with precisely the window of opportunity, such as they exploited on 9-11, to once again launch a highly consequential attack. And then we're back into the same cycle of not just reacting, but overreacting. And this is a problem of all governments in response to terrorist provocation. They don't understand that that's precisely the strategy of terrorists to provoke an over the top response that they can use to feed into or play into their narrative. And that's what concerns me. It would be far better reflecting on nearly five decades of studied terrorism and counterterrorism. It would be far, far better to have a much more consistent and stable response to terrorism than the broad or the wide swings of the pendulum that historically has almost always been the case. So you mentioned that, you know, we are perhaps much better prepared than ever before to counterterrorism. What lessons have we learned or where have we made really significant progress that we should reflect upon um, and be be quite uh, positive about or be quite optimistic about? In the past, I would say, certainly prior to 9-11, Terrorism uh, was a lesser included contingency for many militaries. It was not prioritized. I fear that we're slipping back into that mode. But certainly uh, the militaries of the United States and all of its allies really have been strengthened in their ability to respond to terrorism, mostly through their special operations units. Uh, I think the intelligence communities throughout the world um have certainly become more sophisticated, have a better quality of analysts. I mean, whether it's, you know, your institution in the Netherlands or mine at Georgetown University, 
there were a handful of students interested in terrorism and counterterrorism and insurgency and counterinsurgency before uh, 9-11. Literally, I owe my job at Georgetown University as a, as a fully tenured professor to the fact that there was such intense interest in the 2000s by students. And I think that's paid vast uh, dividends in the sense that the quality of analysis and the quality of understanding terrorism within the within governments throughout the world, I think, has been appreciably enhanced by the undergraduate and especially the master's programs and the Ph.D. programs that have produced people knowledgeable about terrorism in all its manifestations, uh, whether it's quantitative or qualitative methodologies, whether it's Salafi jihadism or whether it's Shia extremism, whether it's white supremacism, uh, whether it's anarchism. I mean, you have. This tremendous interest also in mining the lessons from historical terrorist and counter-terrorist campaigns that really grew at an unprecedented level after 9-11. And that's clearly, I think, been enormously positive, too. But, you know, there's always this disjuncture, which is precisely why I, I brought up the vignette about the, the, the briefing Bin Laden intent on striking the United States or attacking the United States. That was presented to President Bush in August 2001 is that you could have the best intelligence community or the best academics engaged in the study of terrorism. But if policymakers aren't listening or if the threat isn't on their screen, it's not an intelligence failure, in my view. It's a policy failure. And I risk that today we're in this in the mode that we believe we've turned the corner in the struggle of terrorism, that we risk diminishing the threat at this time rather than realizing that terrorism has become undeniably a fixture of 21st century global security that cannot be ignored. Taking into consideration that there are more terrorist organizations today than there were 20 years ago and more attacks being carried out worldwide, do you think that the approach to counterterrorism that's been taken has been the right one? I think... The biggest, you know, clearly the biggest mistakes were invading and occupying countries. Um, that didn't work very well. Uh, there was, I think, commendably a shift. But even though there was that shift, the withdrawal of U.S. and coalition forces from Iraq in, 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 in 2011, again, my problem is that the pendulum swings from having hundreds of thousands of troops in a country to having zero. Hundreds of thousands <laughs> occupying a country clearly wasn't the answer. But zero similarly is, is I think, a fool's errand to believe that, you know, a couple of thousand troops that that provide um, training and advising and enable host countries afflicted by the threat of terrorism to respond effectively is somehow an extravagance that can no longer be afforded. The logic behind that um, eludes me. But more specifically, in answer to your question, Despite the fact that from the start of the war on terrorism 20 years ago, it was proclaimed as a war of ideas. It was never fought that way. It was always fought militarily. And that was that was our mistake. And not not always correctly militarily, um, as Bin Laden and Al Qaeda's escape from Tora Bora in the White Mountains in, in, in late 2001 demonstrates, but also in the invasion of Iraq in, in particular. We paid a lot of lip service to countering the narrative or waging this war of ideas, but it never, ever received the priority that the military dimension did or never received the type of executive and legislative prioritization 
that it required to succeed. And that's why I think there's four times as many Salafi jihadi groups on the State Department's list of foreign terrorist, uh, foreign terrorist designated organizations as there were on 9-11. And I think the answer is, is fairly simple. Um, you, you can quantify killing and capturing terrorist leaders and, and, and foot soldiers. I mean, this is something that can be accomplished uh, within the lifespan of a presidential administration in the United States or even within the, the two-year term that our congressmen in the House of Representatives serve. It's far more difficult to quantify or to have meaningful metrics of how you have dissuaded people from joining terrorist organizations, how you measure the effectiveness of countering the terrorist clarion call to violence by introducing values that uphold uh, democracy, uh, um, human freedoms and, and dignity, the rights of women and, and so on. You can't really measure that. And therefore, I think historically, there's been a lot less interest in budgetary allocations to really live up to the promise that this would be a war of ideas. It's never been that. So then if I can ask you, how do we overall have a more consistent and maybe a more balanced, if I can call it a balanced approach? What would your your sort of recommendations be for that in moving forward? How do we sort of remedy some of those uh, missteps, perhaps? The simplest, uh, unfortunately, most cynical response is to say it's going to take another, unfortunately, catastrophic terrorist attack to shake us out of, I think, the the notion that terrorism is not as much of a strategic priority as great power competition. Um, I'm not saying that it has to that it has to occupy the number one position, but it has to be up there. And I fear that the United States, but many other countries, see it as an either or choice: um, focus on great power competition and really denigrate or dismiss the threat of terrorism. We have to be capable in the 21st century international society that is so interconnected in being able to respond to the waterfront of threats that are both kinetic and non-kinetic. And certainly cyber terrorism or cyber crimes or cyber warfare conforms to that, too. So this, I think, goes back to my point that we have to have a much more stable rather than sclerotic response to these threats, one that's consistent and shifts priorities as needed, but that doesn't sort of denigrate or dismiss threats. That, in my view, is why al-Qaeda and ISIS has been able to spread from their core loci of whether it was South Asia and al-Qaeda's case or the Levant and ISIS to northwest, east, and in ISIS's case now southern Africa, uh, to the, to the Caucasus, uh, throughout, uh, South Asia and Southeast Asia. So we have to be more consistent in our response. And sometimes we have to understand there may not be any metrics. I mean, dissuading someone from becoming a terrorist is enormously important, but it's, in my view, Im- immeasurable in, in, in some respects. So we have to have confidence in the fact that these resources over the long term will deliver results. And, you know, one only has to refer back to the Cold War. The United States and NATO in the West did not triumph over the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact in the Cold War by force of arms. I mean, there was certainly a military standoff, uh, but it was a very concerted, directed, 
coordinated and properly resourced information operations effort by Radio Free Europe, by Radio Liberty, by the Voice of America, by the United States Information Agency. Uh, you had then a prioritization of the non-kinetic tools, which was enormously consequential. I mean, rarely is any outcome achieved through just one initiative. It's often a concatenation of a variety of policy initiatives. My point is we've leaned overly heavy the past 20 years on the kinetic side and under-resourced the non-kinetic side. And that's where I believe we've gone astray and why we're still fighting this, this war 20 years later, regardless of whether people want to say this war is over, but it is by no means over. We've touched upon, I think, some some really significant um, challenges or struggles within the the field of counterterrorism. But if you had to pinpoint sort of what do you think has in the years since uh, over the past 20 years, what has remained the key or the most significant challenge um, that is needed in order to have a more effective approach to counterterrorism? Uh, easy consistency of effort. The trouble is, throughout the war on terrorism, every single U.S. president, from President Bush, President Obama, President Trump, now President Biden, has precipitously declared victory over our enemies, or declared that they're that 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 they've been sufficiently weakened that we can divert resources elsewhere, and that is the cardinal mistake because our adversaries, firstly, they see their cause as divinely ordained, which means that. Uh, they're not going to lay down their arms. Uh, I'll cite then uh, commander, commander in chief, uh, the general commanding the U.S. Central Command, uh, General James uh, Mattis, before he was secretary of defense who in 2013, said the enemy always gets a vote. And we often forget that. And I think if we had a more consistent response, we would see these things to the end and not be tempted to declare victory and move on, because every time we've done that in the past. Um, it has just breathed new life, not only into the terrorist organizations who have been able to regroup and reorganize to carry on their struggles, but in many places, whether it's Syria, uh, Libya, um, South Asia, it's enabled our adversaries to intervene in these conflicts in many instances in a in a very detrimental way to Western interests. And. Given that terrorism is such a, um, you know, a, a pervasive component or aspect of 21st century life, how would you define victory? What to you would be an indicator that we have actually achieved some sort of, um, you know, goal or desired outcome in, in the global war on terror? What would that look like? The franchises of terrorist groups begin to dry up, become less threatening and less consequential. I haven't really seen that happening anywhere. Um, that the attractiveness of their ideology and the resonance of their narrative is decreased, and that leads to a drying up of both their sources of revenue and sources of, of recruits, and that terrorism is reduced to a local or at best a, a, a national or regional problem rather than the global one it is today. So then as maybe a, a sort of a, a very big question for you to perhaps end upon today is what would you say is the biggest lesson that has been learned for, from 9-11? And, and how should we then take that lesson in moving forward as, as we look to the perhaps the coming decade or the coming 20 years? The past, both, each of the past two centuries 
has found the world enmeshed in a global conflict because of an act of terrorism. Um, of course, in the 20th century, it was the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo, the heir to the Habsburg throne, that uh, set alight the fuse that started World War One. It wasn't the only cause, but it certainly set in motion the chain of events that led to what at the time had been the world's greatest uh, conflagration. Um, and of course, at the beginning of the 20th century, it was the 9-11 attacks, which changed the course of history exactly as I think Bin Laden had hoped it would. So I think it's an understanding of the power of terrorism to affect events and the fact that the threat of terrorism has to be taken seriously, has to be responded to consistently and shouldn't be denigrated or dismissed uh, as, as, as a terrorism analyst of, of, of many decades. I found it enormously depressing that not only are we still fighting the war on terrorism, but we face new terrorist threats and new terrorist adversaries. 20 years ago, at least in the United States, the threats were primarily external. It was people coming to this country to carry out terrorist attacks. What we've seen in recent years is we have threats from our own citizens. Um, and, you know, certainly the events of January 6th, 2021 cannot be divorced from the long road we have traveled since September 11th, 2001. Terrorists always seek as part of their stock and trade to undermine confidence in elected leadership, to create profound sources of divisiveness and polarization within societies. It's indisputable that, I mean, this is, this is part of the price we paid for, 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 for 9-11, that in the terrorist goal, as I said earlier, to impose this strategy of provocation to get us to overreact. We've created problems in the United States that other countries experience that this long war has engendered. The solution isn't to ignore the threat of terrorism or to wish it away, but to recognize it for the power that it is and for the consequences, consequences that it especially unleash, unleashes on the liberal uh, democratic state. You know, I'm often reminded of one thing that's like seared into my memory from September 11th, 2001, when I got finally got home that evening, was watching on television um, congressmen from both parties, Republicans and Democrats, standing together on the steps of the U.S. Capitol and singing in unison, God bless America. The fact that a tableau like that is completely unimaginable in the year 2021 uh saddens me so enormously and, again, underscores terrorists' ability to sow the dissensions and to weaken the societies that are their enemies, which the terrorists believe will enable them to triumph. I don't think our enemies will triumph, but I believe, though, that, you know, the disunity that we see today is a product from some of the failures of the conduct of the war on terrorism and we have to learn better from those mistakes and achieve that now lost unity and common purpose and um and uh prioritization of these threats along with the many others that confront western liberal democracies uh at this particular juncture in history certainly a lot of very heavy food for thought in moving forward 
Um, Bruce, I just want to thank you again. This has been truly a pleasure um, and it's been deeply insightful to to hear your reflections, especially given just the seminal role you've played in this field, not only over the last 20 years, but over the past 45 years. So thank you again for taking the time to speak with us today. You're very welcome. It's been a great pleasure. This has been Counterterrorism After 9-11, a new podcast series from the International Center for Counterterrorism. For more counterterrorism insights, please find us at icct.nl. Stay tuned for more episodes of Counterterrorism After 9-11.